ILCA is, today, the world's leading and most important multidisciplinary society tackling liver cancer. ILCA. Welcome to our podcast. My name is Amit Singhal, a hepatologist from UT Southwestern Medical Center. I'm joined today by Marco Senduzzi, a hepatologist from the Barcelona Clinic Liver Cancer Group. Uh, today, Marco and I will be discussing the ILCA single topic workshop on HCC risk stratification and surveillance that was held in early June um, in Paris. So, Marco, as you know, um, you know, we had a great single topic workshop uh, that covered many areas of risk stratification and early detection, both areas of great need um, and areas that we've seen a lot of advances in the last few years. You know, we had a lot of great speakers that were talking about these things. Can you tell me what was one of the things that you really noted? And let's start with risk stratification, because that was um, you know, how the workshop kicked off. Hello, Amit. Hello to everyone. Yes, the topic was really great as well, the, all the presentation as well as the discussion. I think that I noted that it focused especially on risk stratification and the evolving clinical risk models as well as, as, well as uh, biomarkers. Could you briefly expose uh, why it's so relevant to work on this topic? Yeah, you know, Marco, I think this is an area that we really need to drill down in for two different reasons. The first is that we know that patients with cirrhosis are our main at-risk cohort for HCC. You know, once you develop cirrhosis, you have an annual risk of developing HCC somewhere between 1% to 2% per year, but huge variation between different patients. And if we had better risk stratification models, whether those are clinical risk models or whether those are biomarkers, we may be able to change our intensity of surveillance, or we may better apply primary prevention to those at highest risk. And then, as you know, one of the other areas that we're really struggling with are these non-serotic patients who also can develop um, HCC. And if we have these risk stratification models and we're able to identify, you know, those uh, patients who are truly high risk among this large denominator of non-serotic patients, we once again may be able to best apply, you know, our primary prevention or um, our surveillance modalities in those at highest risk of developing HCC. Now, you know, when we think of applying these things and using this, these risk stratification models, I think most of us think about secondary prevention, you know, i.e. HCC surveillance, detecting HCC at an early stage. But one of the other areas that we've seen a lot of at least desire in, is primary prevention. And so this was also one of the things that we talked about in the single topic um, workshop. So um, do you mind just talking about, you know, what are the things that you took away in terms of potential primary prevention strategies, both evidence-based ones we should be applying today, as well as those that may be around the corner or may need further data to, you, you know, consider in the future? Yes, uh, absolutely. In, in this sense, the presentation of Neuropatric was, was great. In general, we know that we can reduce the, the incidence of, of HCC by the reduction of alcohol and the transmission and the evolution of viral infection. This is, this is clear. What is 
less clear is other factors could affect, such as aspirin, metformin, statins. We have a lot of data, but they mainly comes for registry or retrospective study. So the major concern that we we'll all have in this sense is that there is an incomplete risk assessment evaluation or also the dose, the duration of the medication, and also many cofactors are, are not evaluated. I mean, this is a great area to study, to design new studies. However, I think they are very, very, very complicated. So, um, you know, Marco, I completely agree. I think that, you know, when we take a look um, at the primary prevention strategies, we can say the ones that have good data to use today is, you know, hepatitis B vaccination and antiviral treatment. Very good data saying that if you treat somebody for hepatitis B, you treat somebody for hepatitis C, you significantly reduce their risk of HCC, and these should be, um, you know, used in today's practice. You mentioned several of the ones that are coming around the corner, you know, aspirin, statins, metformin, um, coffee. I mean, all great papers, all great things that, you know, can be evaluated, and we're going to see more data come out over the next few years. But to your point, not something we should be using for primary prevention today, but, you know, hopefully we will see these strategies be better evaluated in the future. You know, so, so that's primary prevention. And once again, you know, we already referenced um, secondary prevention, this idea of HEC surveillance, you know, important in terms of doing this. Um, and there have been, once again, several studies, both in hepatitis B, as well as those in cirrhosis, you know, in terms of the benefits and the harms. Once again, evolving science in terms of the value of HEC surveillance. And we had a very nice talk by Maria from your group in terms of talking about, you know, the overall value of HEC surveillance. So can you just give us a summary of where we stand in terms of HEC surveillance today in terms of the data? Yeah. First of all, starting with the, the concept uh, and the main goal of surveillance that we should always keep in mind that is a reduction of mortality uh, due to HCC. So we have some data. We have a randomized clinical trial, HBV patient a trial from Taiwan, where it was shown that a 37% reduction in, in mortality with a combination of ultrasound and AFP. Some concern, of course, with this randomized clinical trial was the low adherence, the, uh, the fact that the majority of patients were non-serotic. So in a way, there is a limitation of its application in cirrhotic patients. However, we have a published meta-analysis led this year that shows that uh, surveillance in cirrhotic patients increase early detection, curative treatment, and increase uh, surveillance. Cirrhotic patients uh, with NAFLD, we have probably less data on that, but it seems reasonable that incidence is quite similar. Reason, of course, is F3 patients, or especially uh, those patients with NAFLD non-cirrhotic. This is a great example to take into account when considering that could be less beneficious uh, or marginal, the benefit of, of surveillance, because here we have to take into account two important concept, competing risk of mortality and uh, um, um, the overdiagnosis concept. So probably we need more data. I'm not sure we can apply randomized clinical trial in this in this setting. So we have to think about how to generate uh, how to generate new data. Yeah, you know, Marco, I completely agree. I mean, so you know we have several cohort studies as you referenced in patients with cirrhosis. 
albeit imperfect data, consistent data. So I think that, you know, this is good data for us to keep in mind as we apply these out. I think the point you bring up about NAFLD is important, right? I mean, like, so this is where, um, you know, and we'll talk about this in terms of efficacy versus effectiveness. It is possible that surveillance doesn't work as well in NAFLD patients, particularly the sort of current modalities we have. And so I think having these data in NAFLD will be critical since this is, you know, not only the current status, but is going to be the foreseeable future of our cirrhosis patient population, as well as our HCC patient population. And so data of the overall value in this patient population is going to be very important. You know, the overall value is not only determined by the benefits, but also this concept of potential surveillance harms, whether they're physical harms, financial harms, psychological harms. And this is an area in terms of the systematic review and meta-analysis showing that there's not that many studies that have looked at this. We only identified four studies to date, relatively small number of patients, but you know, an area, once again, that we need better data to quantify those surveillance harms that we can then figure out what is the balance of benefits and harms. Marco, the other thing you know, we have to think through is those are the efficacy data, right? And so efficacy is how well does this work in you know, well-controlled settings and ideal patient populations, ideal providers, et cetera. And then we have effectiveness. How well does this work in clinical practice in the everyday patients that we see in front of us? And, you know, effectiveness can be impacted by several different factors, most notably test utilization and test effectiveness. You know, these were concepts that we discussed very um, uh, in depth during this single topic workshop. There has now been several studies in, in a meta-analysis showing that HEC surveillance is underused no matter where you live, um, an area that is more problematic in the U.S. Less than 20% of at-risk patients receive surveillance, although still less than 50% in Europe and in Asia. So it doesn't matter where you live. This is an issue. The good thing is that, you know, there was also, um, there have been several intervention strategies that show that you can increase adherence. Do you mind just briefly reviewing some of the intervention strategies that you think are interesting or promising that we should consider um, in, in clinical practice? Yes, this is an absolutely relevant topic. And it's always impressive to me to register and to know the which are the real number of the use of surveillance that you previously mentioned. This is absolutely impressive. So we know that we have different strategy and different targets to increase the surveillance. And there are, of course, at patient level with education empowerment of the patient and also uh, navigation care of the patient at provider levels. And we know also, as you previously mentioned, that it depends a lot on the type of, of doctors that indicate, which is the, the screening and the surveillance. And uh, especially with education and EMR reminders, uh, this implements uh, the, 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 the surveillance in cirrhotic, in cirrhotic patient and also system level. So mailed outreach, uh, and uh, you worked on that and you showed with a randomized clinical trial of more than uh, 1,800 patients uh, that the combination of mailed outreach strategy together with uh, the navigation of the patient uh, increases the surveillance uptake. So in a way, I think it is absolutely relevant because what with what we have today, we can improve uh, the surveillance uptake. This is extremely relevant. I agree. We have the nice thing is we have a portfolio of 
different intervention strategies we can consider, all acting on different levels. Now, we just need to do it. Absolutely, absolutely. So another thing, of course, we try to do that, but uh, another way we could also try to increase the efficacy of our tools. Okay, and and uh, so could could you comment some of the emerging biomarkers that can address increase the sensitivity of ultrasound or ultrasound with alpha fetoprotein, please? Yeah. So so Marco, another area of immense need when we when we think about improving HCC surveillance efficacy and effectiveness. So um, right now we live in a world where ultrasound and AFP are sort of the two standard surveillance tests. So, you know, ultrasound alone has a sensitivity somewhere around 45% for early stage HCC. Um, When you add in AFP, you increase that sensitivity up to about 63%. Um, Small decrement in specificity, but overall, you know, the sensitivity significantly increased with with using the two tests in combination. Now, as you referenced, I mean, the hope is that we're not still dealing with an ultrasound-based world. you know, in in the future. And so there's been a lot of biomarkers that have uh, come around in terms of having promising early data. Sort of the the most studied protein biomarker panel is probably GALID. So combination of gender, age, AFP, AFPL3, and DCP, which has been evaluated in in a multinational nested case control uh, study, having sensitivities of around 60 to 80% for early stage HEC. Now, there have been early cohort studies that suggest that, you know, GALID um, has reasonable sensitivity for early stage HEC, but we need to see this progress through the phases of biomarker development. So we need larger um, cohort studies to see if this really has sufficient accuracy for us to consider, um, you know, in the future. Outside of protein biomarkers, we also um, clearly touched on, you know, liquid biopsy techniques. This has been of immense interest across, you know, different oncologic areas, including early detection, prognostication, um, you know, treatment response. And, you know, there have been some, you know, fairly large case control studies that suggest uh, CTDNA techniques can be, once again, effective for early stage HCC detection. So, you know, there have been now a couple large um, case control studies conducted in the U.S. showing the CTDNA, CTDNA techniques can have sensitivities somewhere in the mid-70s for early stage HCC detection, although we once again need, um, you know, larger cohort studies to see if these will continue to have high sensitivities in the future. Overall, I'm very optimistic um, about biomarker-based surveillance. I think this is a way that we can increase sensitivity as well as increase utilization. I mean, once again, biomarkers are easy to do, can be done the same day as when you come in for your clinic visit. Now, as you know, Marco, it's not just biomarkers that we're starting to see advances in, right? I mean, so we have the biomarkers that I discussed, but we're also seeing a lot of interest in alternative imaging modalities. Um, which was another thing that we discussed during the the single topic workshop. Do you mind, um, you know, discussing some of the alternative imaging modalities that you think may be promising, but also some of the, 
you know, some of the barriers that need to be addressed if these are going to be used in the future? Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, here in this regard, the presentation of uh, Valerie Wilgren was very interesting. She mentioned the alternative techniques, starting for the CD scan. Uh, with contrast, of course, there is, she mentioned uh, a randomized clinical trial uh, in 2013 that compared CD scan versus uh, ultrasound, both arms with alpha-fetoprotein in here. Uh, the results were a bit disappointing because the sensitivity of ultrasound was slightly higher than the CD scan and the costs, of course, were higher uh, for the CD scan group. The sensitivity was around 70%. Uh, besides that, uh, the MRI, of course, as a preferential uh, evaluation since uh, did not use radiation, of course, that, that there is not a point of the issue of the contrast, iodate contrast. So uh, here I want to mention the prospective study from Kim that compared MRI with uh, ultrasound with more than 400 patients. The patients were mainly HBV cirrhotic, and they found that the sensitivity was frankly higher for MRI. However, these were only HPV patients, and especially there is no cost uh, analysis in, in this regard. What we know more for MRI, potentially the abbreviated MRI is a valid option. However, we have no uh, prospective data on that. Abbreviated uh, MRI does not use contrast and is very fast. So this is what we can do with uh, abbreviated MRI that with conventional MRI is the main limitation. Uh, the, the applicability to cost and time of the technique. That's great, Marco. So I think that, you know, once again, you know, I think that we've seen a lot of advances in terms of biomarkers. And then as you referenced, you know, some exciting advances that we've seen in terms of imaging modalities, you know, but all of these data are early. And I think the the nice thing that, you know, really happened during the single topic workshop was not just a summary of these data, but really a discussion of some of the remaining items that are necessary to bring these to market. And, you know, there was representation from academics, there was representation from industry. And I think we had a nice discussion about what are realistic methods to bring these to market, um, but have thorough evaluation in an expedited manner. Because, I mean, as hepatologists, we see these patients in front of us who, who are high risk and are developing HEC, and we clearly need to do better in terms of early detection, if not prevention. So, you know, it, it reminds me of the old adage, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. We've seen a lot of advances in the treatment side of things, which is amazing. But I think that, you know, we really need to continue um, also pushing forward this this field of primary and secondary prevention to really improve outcomes for HCC. With that, Marco, um, it was great discussing the single topic workshop with you and, and reviewing some of the exciting stuff that we were able to, to discuss during the conference. I have to say that, you know, really grateful for Ilka putting this on. Very important um, topics. And I hope that we continue to see progress in here. And this will be only the first of several conferences on this side of the management uh, strategy. Once again, thanks, Marco. Great talking about this. Thanks for everyone joining in. Thank you. Thank you to everyone. Bye-bye. This episode is sponsored by Heptama Research, an international peer-reviewed, gold-open access, continuously published online academic journal, founded by OAE Publishing, Inc., 
The journal aims to provide an academic exchange platform focusing on all topics of liver cancer and its related diseases through publications, video abstracts, webinars and interviews. ILCA is today the world's leading and most important multidisciplinary society tackling liver cancer. ILCA